Disrupting Japan, Episode 62. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from the CEOs breaking into Japan. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. GitHub entered the Japanese market under enviable conditions. They already had a strong corporate user base, solid brand awareness, and product evangelists throughout Japan. They did not so much push their way into the Japanese market so much as they were pulled into it. Even under the best conditions, however, Japan market entry is not easy. And Derek Sorkin explains some of the challenges they faced with their distribution plans and their original go to market strategies, and how they managed to salvage a great ongoing relationship from what could have been a very ugly incident. Derek also explains why, even in this age of Skype and GoToMeeting, it's absolutely essential to spend the time and money on airfare in managing international offices and to maintain trust and credibility. But Derek explains all of that much better than I can. So let's hear from our sponsor and then get right to the interview. If you're a startup thinking about Japan, you'll never really understand the opportunities here until you start to take a serious look at what's happening outside of Tokyo. Osaka, in particular, deserves your attention, and this is especially true if you and your team are involved in smart cities technologies. Now, Hankyu's GVH5 project is Osaka's startup central, and it's a great place for you to get started. They offer co working space, bilingual business support, venture investment, and they're at the center of a great international startup and mentor community. Now, Hankyu's GVH5 in Osaka really deserves your attention. So pay him a visit at www.gvh-5.com/en. You'll be glad you did. So I'm sitting here with Derek Sorkin,、uh, the head of Asia Pacific for GitHub, who spearheaded GitHub's entry into Japan. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So thanks for sitting down with me. No problem, Tim. It's good to talk to you again. Excellent. So listen, let's. You guys have been been here a while, and you're doing really well. So let's let's step it back a couple of years. Okay. And what did GitHub see in Japan? What was the motivation for coming here? Sure. We had quite an interesting background with Japan. Our co-founders had been coming here for some time for different conferences, working with companies like Digital Garage back in the day,、uh, talking to them. And open source has always had a strong foothold in Japan. Things like、uh, many of the contributors to the Ruby project, which GitHub is obviously built on to a certain extent, are、uh, in in Japan、sure. and Japanese. I mean, Ruby is from Japan, right? So we always had a good core base of those Ruby developers that were interested in open source that were using GitHub since the very early days of GitHub back in 2009 and 2010. So when we started in the the B two B space and and working with enterprises,、uh, and I think we'll get into this a little more later around how decisions are made in Japan, but that that really helped us here. And there were lots of the forward thinking. Internet companies—I'll say internet companies broadly—but internet gaming companies like that—that、uh, immediately took took a hold with organizations on GitHub.com. Okay, so even before you guys were here, you had brand awareness and you had users here in Japan. Absolutely, well, that's a that's a huge leg up in the market. Yeah, it, it makes it very <laughs> interesting,、um, especially at that time, three years ago or so, a little more than three years ago. We didn't have any staff in Japan, 
So all of our efforts in Japan to continue to raise that awareness and give back to that community were us coming over from San Francisco, from the U.S., or from wherever we happen to be around the world for about a week at a time. Well, you had one guy out here, Daisuke. Yeah, so, so uh, that's why I said three and a half years ago. About ah, okay. Three and a half years ago, we hired Daisuke. Um, Dice, as we affectionately call him. And he was great and is great, still great for GitHub. Uh, okay, so let me ask you, I mean, you, sure. you had brand awareness, you had a user base here from, from the very beginning, which is fantastic. So what was the trigger that made, the, made headquarters finally say, now it's time to, to set up in Japan for real? So I, I think if I can point to one specific event, I was here on a trip back in 2013 with one of the co-founders. Actually, I believe it was early 2014. And we were going around and meeting with some of our existing customers here. And we were also invited to an event that uh, one of the larger trading companies was putting on in Japan, where they had invited lots of other companies in, were asking lots of questions, and we were on a few panels there. And I think that trip was really the catalyst in the co-founder's mind that Japan is a very real market opportunity for us. Hmm. And given that we had the brand recognition here, and that was obvious from the things we were doing, like meetups around Tokyo or in Yokohama, um, and that we had now people on the ground with DICE, we made the decision to put more of our investment in Japan and actually get some people on the ground here so that we could continue to grow our business, and, and not just our business, but also the community and our engagement with that community. Okay, all right, that makes sense. It was a really, um, it was a gradual, a natural result of what you'd been doing so far. Absolutely, I think it, just as a natural progression, uh, we were at a point as a company where international expansion was imminent, and we were at a point with Japan where Japan seemed like a very logical option for us to move toward. So about how many users, how many customers did you have here when you pulled that trigger and said, let's go into the market? It's hard for me to say exactly, but I could ballpark for you that we had around 75 customers on the B2B side. Okay. Uh, so certainly enough to be able to, to come out here and establish ourselves a little bit and tens of thousands of users paying users on github.com and, and close to 750,000 users on github.com. Well, it's, so it sounds like GitHub was really more pulled into the market than like trying to force its way into the market. Yeah, I would say we were, we were in a very unique position based on others that I've talked to, especially others that have done market entry in Japan, uh, which, which certainly raised some, some unique things in our process of opening up the office here and expanding that presence and working with that community. But we were in a very good position from the beginning. Excellent. How did you structure the initial entry? Was it through partnerships? Was it a joint venture? We originally were intending to open up a, a small office here that was mainly going to be a, a sales and marketing arm for GitHub. Mm -hmm. uh, we quickly realized that in the Japanese market, there is a necessity to have partnerships. Everything is done through partners. Yeah. Or at least it certainly seems that way on the, on the surface when you talk to companies that have recently made a market entry. Well, it seems like across the board, most um, B2B software companies do a much higher percentage of their, their business through partners in Japan than they do in the rest of the world. Well, certainly. And, and I can see where that makes sense, especially if you're, if you're a U.S.-based company accustomed to doing direct sales regularly. Uh, it almost seems foreign to, no pun intended, to come into uh, a foreign market and work almost exclusively through the channel. Right. Um, and that was further complicated by the fact that we had existing customers here. But we decided to move forward with, with the partner approach, and eventually we brought on a distributor here okay. and decided that instead of trying to manage 
20 or 30 partners individually. We wanted one central distributor that could help us manage those partner relationships and help us drive sales to the, the enterprise here. And then we could continue to manage directly the community side, community growth, active user growth on github.com, some of the other metrics that are important. And, and can us. we, is it okay to talk about who the partner was or do you wanna? Oh sure, I think that's, that's public knowledge. So we, we partnered with Macnica Networks uh, to come into Japan. So you mentioned you had a lot of customers before your market entry. So were those customers also being handled through Magnica, or was Magnica something you did during the market entry? It was something we did during the market entry. The customers that we had before, we still maintained and, and still do maintain direct relationships with, with almost all of them, with the exception of ones that had a, a strong desire to work with Japanese companies directly mm-hmm. uh, for things like invoicing, being able to transfer in Japanese bank accounts, lots of things that we found out as we, we continued in the process of building out this market. Now, you ended up outgrowing that relationship pretty quickly. Um, actually, let's, let's talk. We'll get back to that story a little later on because okay. there's, there's a lot that happened between then and now. Yeah. <laughs> so the subsidiaries, the employees, the GitHub employees here were going to focus on community building and outreach support, mm-hmm. and not so much work on the partner sales side. You already had a customer base in Japan. But after your market entry, did you discover anything about the product or the services lineup around the product that you needed to change for the Japanese market? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so, so I think the, the thing that we noticed immediately was an extraordinary need for Japanese language support, which <laughs> yeah. uh, seems like something that in the it seems like something that would be common sense, but it's not something that you're necessarily actively thinking about as you proceed into this market, especially if you already have customers here. There's not already that Japanese support channel. So this is one of the things that Magnica helped us with. They helped us with some, some first-level Japanese language support. Uh, and then as we saw the need for that continuing to grow, part of our strategy here, uh, especially with the help from DICE, became establishing our own Japanese language support team so that we could do high-level support, so tier two, tier three type support mm-hmm. in Japanese, which is something we're still rolling out. It's a long program to be able to put together. Now, the product is the product itself localized? No, it's not. Oh. Uh, it's not. But the interesting thing about GitHub the product is that there are very few words in it. And most of the words that do exist in GitHub are words that are common nomenclature for uh, Git if you're using it via the command line. Oh, so okay. the large majority of users, even in Japan, are familiar with terms like merge, pull, um, and that's a lot of the actual words that are in GitHub. Right, it's, a, it's almost a, it's, its own specialized language. Right. But this is really interesting because that is one of the, usually on the, the list of absolute have to do to come into the Japanese market, it's localize the product. Sure. And you guys have been very successful without taking that step. Have you had pushback from clients saying, look, you've got to have this or we're not coming on board? Or has it just been a non-issue? I I don't want to say that it's a non-issue. People have certainly brought it up, but I don't think it's ever gotten to the point where a customer has said, we won't use your product unless this happens. And I, I do think that's largely because so much of the content inside of GitHub and what makes GitHub powerful is user generated. So it's the, the actual files that are inside of a repo, whether that's code or whether it's an HR team collaborating on documentation. It's the communication happening in issues and the communication happening in pull requests. And GitHub is completely language agnostic when it comes to that. So as long as you, you, as long as you can write encoded UTF-8 
Right, right. <laughs> so uh, we run into some problems occasionally with documentation that's in like Shift.js or an older older Japanese encoding format. Right. But we've, we've fixed a lot of that as we've continued to discover it. But that's, that is really fascinating. I, I suppose perhaps one of the reasons is that your, your customers, your users, and the people who will ultimately make the buying decision are engineers. Absolutely. That's a huge part of it. You know, there are no, at least to my knowledge, and there may be, most of the popular computer languages today, especially the ones that we work with at GitHub on the engineering side, and the ones that really helped us build our open source community, are all English-based. So, so there's a certain, again, nomenclature there that those developers and people making those decisions are already accustomed to. Okay, that's awesome. I, I love finding the exception to any rule I have in my head. <laughs> so what, what do you see as your key competitive advantage here in the market? How do you position yourself differently against the, the source control systems that are out, here, out there now? Well, I think the first thing is that it's important to identify there's really two different levels of competitors in the market. There's legacy competition, which is, is what some would consider the status quo, but older centralized version control systems. So like Subversion, CVS? Exactly. Okay. Um, and then there's the, the newer, more direct competition. So, uh, you know, companies like Atlassian, GitLab, that more directly compete with us on the, the, the Git front. I think it's important to say, too, we certainly welcome that competition, right? That competition is what helps drive innovation. But what differentiates us in this market specifically is performance. I think there's been a long, maybe a long history, but certainly a need in Japan for quality in the products that people are implementing, especially when you look at how larger Japanese companies plan for these, these system rollouts. They're making an investment and in not in something that they might have to change in a year. They're making a commitment to do something for, for five to ten years in a lot of cases. So when you're talking about performance, are you talking about, what, what do you mean by that exactly? <laughs> sure. So, so I think there's a lot of things that performance can mean. So to speak about it specifically, I'm talking about uh, things like response times, page load times, uh, knowing that the, the function that you're performing is always going to work and return the value that you expect it to. Uh, so in the case of GitHub, it might be something like a page taking you know, 30 milliseconds to load mm -hmm. instead of 500 milliseconds to load. Um, it might be the high availability configuration that we have working and being easy to set up every single time you set up an enterprise instance uh, without having a lot of moving parts. I think the other thing that's nice, and I lump into the performance front, is on the administrative side, because we ship GitHub very differently from our competitors. We ship it as a packaged appliance, so, right. uh, and a virtual appliance. So not a physical box, but uh, a, a virtual appliance, which means we maintain all those dependencies on our side. So we know that everything works together and everything's been tested. So because there's not lots of other dependencies and there's not system engineers that are required to keep those dependencies up to date, it means that upgrades are very easy, administrative overhead is very low, and that performance still remains extremely high. Okay. Coming to the market, you were planning on having Machnika handle most of the partner relationships mm -hmm. and focusing on the direct outreach with your internal staff. Did that pretty much go as planned? Were there things that worked better than expected, things that didn't quite work out as expected? I think as with anything at this scale, there's certainly things that don't go as expected. Uh, and this, this case was no, no different. Uh, Macnica Networks has been a wonderful partner for us, uh, and they continue to be a, a great partner for us. But we immediately 
I think, recognized after several months of, of working on the ground here, the need for, maybe recognized the need for is the wrong word. What we did was had people coming to us saying they wanted direct relationships with us. And they were interested not just in the product that we had, but in our knowledge around how to develop software as a company mm-hmm. and the knowledge that we have from our other customers about what they're doing in, I really dislike this term, but in the digital transformation space. Right. So at, at that point, that became something that's very hard to enable partners to deliver on your behalf. Okay. So how did you handle that situation? If you've got company, if you have customers that you would normally consider part of your partner channels, mm-hmm. and you've got a master distributor supposed to be handling mm-hmm. that, that's a very touchy situation to be in. Absolutely. How'd you handle that? How'd you get through that? We had a lot of conversations internally, I think, thinking about what's the best strategy. And I think we came back to something that GitHub has been good at for a long time, which is being honest, open, and transparent. So we finally went to went to Magnica and had a tough conversation and said, basically, you've been doing a good job for us, but the structure of the, the arrangement that we had in place is a bit limiting given where we are in the market now. And you have to keep in mind, this is almost a year after we had opened the office here. So we'd been doing business in this manner for 12 months when right. we had this conversation. And it was a, a little bit of a touchy conversation to get through, uh, but I think we were open and honest about the reasons that we wanted to make the change. And we were, we were also transparent with you know, some of the initiatives that we were trying to take on and, and some of the things that we were trying to do directly. And eventually, Magnica was receptive to the conversation. So, so the change is they went from a master distributor status to just a, a regular distributor? Yeah, just a distributor. Okay. Right? And we still don't have any other distributors in Japan. But moving away from that, that exclusivity gives us the, the ability to work with some of the larger SIs in Japan if they, if they came to, to us. It gives us the ability to work with some services partners in Japan. I think this is, GitHub sounds like it went through a process that normally takes, you guys did in one year what most companies tend to do over several years here in Japan. And it's, it's great to enter with a partner. And eventually, almost all companies want to grow out of that relationship. Well, the challenge, of course, is doing it in a way that everyone's happy and that the partner keeps selling your product and stays engaged. And has that been what happened? Or they, is Magnica still bringing on new customers? Absolutely. Okay, they're they're incredibly engaged as a partner. And I, I think that uh, some of that goes to the, the relationships that we have established uh, between the organizations. And I think some of it as well goes to the fact that they're good people and I think they appreciated how we approached the problem. We didn't try and gloss it over. We didn't try and find a loophole in our agreement or anything like that. We just had a very direct conversation with them. What would your advice be for someone else coming into Japan? So we're not talking about GitHub and Magnica specifically, but another company coming into Japan, would you advise them to go with a exclusive distributor relationship or would you advise them to just go it alone from the very beginning? I think there's so many variables that go into answering that question. Uh, what kind of company are we talking about? Are they a software company? Do they sell hardware? Is it a restaurant? Let, let's say it's, <laughs> it's, it's, cl- let's say it's uh, close enough to GitHub. It's a B2B software company. All right, sure. I, I would still advise and still, still do advise when, when any, anybody asks me the question to go with a partner. Right. Uh, the advice that I would give that's a little bit different from what we would do is I, I would not um, lock myself down to any kind of exclusivity with a single partner. 
Um, and that's not because that, that partner won't do a good job, but it can be limiting when you, and you don't know when you're gonna reach that inflection point that right. you mentioned earlier. So I think trying to, to structure agreements in such a way so that you have enough flexibility so that when you reach that inflection point, you can move in that direction without having to, to renegotiate contracts. So go with partners, but non-exclusive partners. Absolutely. Excellent. Looking back on it, was there a particular mistake that you made that you wish you, you hadn't? That you could have saved yourself a whole lot of trouble if you'd done something differently? Oh, if I could, if I could just name one. I think everybody <laughs> makes mistakes uh, when, they're, when they're entering a market. I think the biggest mistake that I personally made was coming in with preconceived notions of what the market was like. And I think it's very hard to come into a place with a completely open mind around what that might be, especially when you've never worked so in what, that market what sort before. So what sort of conceptions did you have of Japan? So myself and really working for a U.S.-based company, a company that's been uh, obviously successful in the United States and done business in a very specific way there. I think that people from the U.S. that haven't spent much time in Japan, and, and you may know this even better than I do, have certain preconceived notions about how the Japanese market works. You know, it's very hierarchical, so the assumption is that decisions come from the top. It works uh, quite the opposite here, where it's a very consensus-driven decision-making process, which goes back to, uh, I think, one of the earlier questions, why I think we've been successful in Japan is because of that consensus-driven process. We had people that were using GitHub already and driving that decision up through that management That's true. You, you sort of accidentally stumbled into the right strategy there. You right. had bottom-up consensus already. Yes, accidentally <laughs> stumbled into is an excellent way to put it. But I think there's, there's a lot of those, those stereotypes that as we moved away from working exclusively with internet companies, that that would change somehow as we started to work with larger enterprises or financial services companies, companies in different verticals. And the experience for me has been that it hasn't. Um, it's still a very consensus-driven decision-making process. But now we've gotten to a point where we don't necessarily have a user foothold. And, and the, the kinds of developers that are attracted to something like GitHub aren't necessarily working for those, uh, for lack of a better term, stodgier verticals. Right, but your sales process in Japan is still that same bottom-up consensus among the developers. Sure. All right. And is that different from the way it is in the States, for example? Uh, not always, right? But I think there's, there's a point in the, the States and, and my limited experience in Europe, um, and even here to a degree, where there's certainly buy-in that's necessary from top-level management, sometimes up to VP and C-level management. And it's important to, to get that. I think the difference is here, no one will ever come out of a meeting with a C-level or a VP-level manager having the person on the other side of the table said, yes, we'll be doing this. There's always going to be another meeting that occurs after that where they discuss with their team whether they should do it or not. And in the U.S., certainly, you can come out of that meeting with a very clear direction on where you're going. Right, right. So I think that was my personal biggest mistake and one example of that preconceived notions about the market. You certainly, we, t we touched on the partner piece, and that's all, that's all a bit of learning as you go. I think, I think one of the other things that we could have done better was scaling up. Uh, we scaled up sales very quickly here, channel management and, and direct sales and, and, and relationship management. We, we could have done a better job working with some of the other teams in GitHub to make sure that we were scaling up other parts of the organization. 
when I say other parts of the organization, I mean things like uh, support from the marketing side, support from support, (laughs) (laughs) making sure that we were continuing to give our customers here what they needed as as we grew on the sales side. And I, I think we we went very aggressive on on the sales side at first, and that was great, and we had some success there. Uh, but then we we had to let the other teams catch up a little bit uh, through no fault of their own. Right. Uh, so and now now we're in a, a a spot that I would consider ready for sort of another inflection point where we can really start to increase the the size of the organization, the complexity of the the deals that we're doing here. But I, I think looking back on it, there's there's just so many things that you could have done differently. But I think the important thing in my mind is that we went ahead and did it anyway. Uh, I I don't think we ever would have learned those things if we tried to analyze the situation and never proceeded with these things. And sure, it's resulted in some tough conversations. It's resulted in in some some re-strategizing on what we're doing. But I think it's much better to, to move forward and iterate and adjust than it would be to try and analyze everything and enter the market from the beginning. Okay. It sounds like, I mean, that focus on sales is not at all unusual because usually the decision to enter Japan or almost any new market is a sales-driven decision, right? It's to increase revenues, so sales has the biggest say in it. But in your position as as kind of, you know, that bridge between headquarters and Japan, so you're the one having to convince them like, no, we need to beef up support, maybe even like to a a greater degree than we normally would in the U.S., what do you think was the biggest source of sort of misunderstandings or misalignments between what the team on the ground in Japan needed and the perception back at headquarters? An understanding that Japan is a different market. And I think what ends up happening, and, and this, is, this is from my own experiences as well as other people that I've talked to that have been in similar positions. I think what ends up happening is you get a, a playbook uh, whether it's a sales playbook, a support playbook, engineering playbook, doesn't matter. But it's very driven by what's happening in the U.S. market. And then you try and apply those same things. And I think you see some limited success with that in places like Europe or in other places in North America, even in other places in Asia. Right? It's relatively easy to take that same kind of playbook. And we have done this to a certain extent uh, to expand business in Australia, New Zealand, uh, even in Southeast Asia, especially markets like Singapore and Malaysia. That is not the same in Japan. The market functions differently here. Decisions are made differently. There are are verticals here that are easier to get into than you would expect them to be, and verticals here that are harder to get into than you would expect them to be. So trying to take, take that playbook without adjusting it specifically for this market can be very difficult. And I think one of the things, and, and uh, to be very clear, I have a, a good relationship with HQ, and I think GitHub Japan also has a very good relationship with, so with HQ. But is that what you tried at first? Did you try to run the U.S. playbook here and see what happened? In, in a sense, yes. But that was before we opened the office. We, uh, had, we had that here. So the question became, how do we expand here? And the, the way that we expand the business here is by truly understanding what... Japanese companies are expecting on the B2B side and what true support for the community looks like on the community side. And that's, it's different in Japan, not the least of which differences is the language. And I think that's something that takes a while for people to understand that haven't spent a lot of time in Japan. Not a lot of people speak English. 
I would say less here than in, in a lot of the other countries in Asia that I visited or in, in Europe, in, in lots of other places in the world. So being able to have employees on the ground that are, are native or excellent Japanese speakers is beyond integral to being able to work in the market. So this is interesting. So it is absolutely essential that your sales, obviously, staff is Japanese, that your support staff is Japanese, but not that the product, the product can stay in English. Yep. Yep. That's really I, interesting. I, <laughs> I um, you know, the product is at the bottom of the list of things that I think we need to localize. Continuing to localize things like documentation, collateral, support, uh, I think that's much higher on the list. Just because, as I said before, the product is so much user-driven content. Right. Now, you, you came out to Japan from HQ. I didn't. And you, you'd worked at GitHub how long before you came out here? I'd been at GitHub, I guess, almost two and a half years before I came out here. Okay. So, so you already had the relationships and, and you could go to bat for Japan and be taken seriously at headquarters. Sure. Right. Uh, that's a lot of the reason that, that I came here was yeah. because of those relationships. Okay. No, I mean, that's great. A lot of times when there's a local hire, they don't have that, that credibility. So... Have there been times where you've had to kind of argue for resources or priorities from Japan against what is, you know, over those in the U.S. market, which is the dominant one? Sure. Uh, often. My focus here is specifically on sales in the entire Asia-Pacific region. I happen to live in Japan, so it's easy for me to interact with the team here. Living here and helping to, to with DICE, build out the office here, and build out some of our other presences in, in Asia Pacific, it's been very easy to build great relationships in this region. Be able to, to use a Japanese term, have a little no communication around some of the issues that people are really feeling. This is, it's like my baby, right? I came out here, I, I pitched it. So I, I want it to be incredibly successful. Uh, and part of that success is me helping to drive some of those conversations in HQ, leveraging the existing relationships I have. So there's certainly been times where there are things where I, I understand that it would be more beneficial to carry out a task or, or an initiative for the U.S. market or for the European market. But my argument is still going to be for the Japanese market. Okay, for example, you, before you talked about how sales in Japan is different. Was it... Difficult to explain that to the sales organization in the U.S. saying, no, we're going to do things differently in Japan, or did they accept that pretty quickly? I think that the sales organization in the U.S. Was, is relatively accepting of it. I think the entire HQ organization was accepting of it, understanding of it. Uh, I think they were understanding and accepting of it from a strategic point of view. I think when it comes to the, the actual tactical execution of that is where there were disagreements. So even things like, like having a corporate pitch deck, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly we have one of those for every region that we operate in. But as you've seen in your, your many years in Japan, a Japanese corporate pitch deck looks very different from Ooh, yeah. a deck that you would see from anywhere else. So, so this is a very small, minute example, really, of, of one of the differences that we have. But saying oh, to no, the headquarters, changing hey, the pitch deck is not a minute difference. That's a big deal. I mean, <laughs> uh, Sure, I, I, I suppose. But going to them and saying, hey, we can't use this, right? We can use some elements of the story in it. We can use some elements of, of the design. But in general, we're going to make a completely different one here. We have to do that. Okay. 
Well, no, I, I think it's great that headquarters was so accepting of that. A lot of times that's, that's a struggle. So what was the biggest challenge for you personally, kind of being that bridge between Japan and HQ? So I think the biggest challenge that I had personally was I, I had made lots of friends at HQ, lots of acquaintances, people that are still my friends and acquaintances, obviously. And I think over that time I, that I was there, I established what I would call some political clout inside the organization, clout that you can, can wisely spend when you need to get things done. And I think coming out here, I spent a lot of that <laughs> trying to get some of these initiatives done. Right. And, and the problem is, I think now being you know, several thousand miles away and, and 17 hours ahead from HQ, it's hard to rebuild a lot of those relationships. And when I, let me pull that back. Rebuild is the wrong word. It's hard to regain some of that clout once you've spent it. Was that just because the, the company's growing so fast and you don't have that FaceTime with the people you used to? I think it's, it's a lot more about the, the FaceTime. I think in, in, a, in a world where we're so connected now, people don't value that FaceTime very much. And it is, it is easy to have a meeting with somebody in the U.S. via teleconference or anything like that. But it's not the same as running into somebody in the street, having a conversation with them, running into them in the office and going to grab a coffee. And those are things that you can't do from this far away, or that are very, very difficult to do from this far away. Uh, so for, in terms of conducting business and being able to, to do those things, it's, it's so much different than it was a decade ago. But being able to maintain those, those relationships that you have to help push the initiatives that I think and, and the organization in Japan thinks we need to, to take on to push this business forward, hard to rebuild some of that clout when you spend. I know what you mean. I mean, Skype and GoToMeeting are wonderful, but some things only get done when you're sitting across the table from somebody. Sure. And I think that that's, it's, it's not even sitting across the table from somebody in a scheduled meeting. It's a lot of serendipitous interaction, mm-hmm. a lot of walking around the office or even being in the same city with people and seeing them while you're out saying, you know, hey, I saw that email you got. Awesome. Let me help push that forward or, or whatever it might be. You just don't have that same ability when you're this far away. That serendipitous interaction doesn't happen serendipitously. <laughs> that makes a whole lot of sense. And, you know, even you who, are, who worked at HQ for a couple of years before coming out here are feeling that. Sure. So what do you do to keep the Japanese staff kind of plugged into what's going on globally? You know, how, how are you keeping Japan from becoming a, a black box? Yeah, well, I think there's, there's a handful of things there. Uh, first of all, I don't think it's my job directly to make sure that Japan doesn't become a black box. I think it's the job of everyone in Japan that's on our staff. And it's, it's my job only by tangential relationship of being in Tokyo. So certainly, I can help make introductions to people that I know. Um, I can encourage people to come here. I can do whatever I can to help promote that. And I can also work with the team here to make sure that they're promoting uh, maintaining relationships with the teams that they're working on at headquarters and with, with other cross-functional teams that they work with on a regular basis. Uh, but I don't think that's, it's, it's not, that can't be driven by one person. That has to be an entire team mentality that we're going to maintain these relationships with not just HQ, but all the other regions that we operate in, right? So, so there's tons of things that you can learn from those people. So do you have a lot of uh, travel people from Japan physically going to San Francisco or people from San Francisco coming through Tokyo? So uh, yes to both, depending on, on what's happening. So we, 
Anytime we make a new hire at GitHub, no matter where they live in the world, they go to San Francisco for a week. Uh, so they, they get into HQ and they, they do their onboarding there. We try and send people to HQ at least a few times a year to make sure that they're maintaining those relationships. Now we try and do it around an event or something like that that makes sense. So you know, recently a lot of the Japanese team was there for GitHub Universe, the, the developer conference that we put on. Uh, we also see a lot of hubbers come through Japan because Japan is interesting. Some on vacation, uh, some for, for work. And we also try and maintain the relationships within the region too. The, you know, our support team is amazing at this. They're basically split between Australia and Japan. And they, they will typically get together once a quarter or so and have everybody in a single location have some of these interactions. I think that's great. And it, that's, that's not to discount SIM in the Philippines, but <laughs> uh, that's something that, that I like to see, but it's also something that you have to balance out because travel is expensive. So yeah. have to think about, you know, I think you have to understand, and I think our team at headquarters does understand this, which has been helpful, that those interactions have to occur to keep people happy. So we can't artificially, uh, I can't artificially as an individual, nor can the team artificially say, we're going to have one-on-ones with people at headquarters every week to try and maintain these relationships and build these relationships. You have to understand that there's value associated in those people getting together on a regular basis and that the cost is, is worth it a lot of times. We've seen some great things come out of small, smaller summits and hack houses and things like that. Uh, and I, I can't imagine a scenario where we will not see great things come out of initiatives like that. So I'm, I'm glad to to work for a place that recognizes the value in that. And I'm also glad to have an amazing team of people in the gr- on the ground in Japan that also recognize that and are willing to participate in that process and learn from, from other people. Okay. Well, let me ask you, looking back on the last couple of years, from even from the time you were strategizing about how to come into the market and to growing it and hiring staff, what would be the best advice you could give country managers who are kind of in the same situation you are? The best advice that I can give is going to sound a little crazy, but it's don't over plan. I've seen and made friends with lots of, lots of people in Japan that are in sort of similar positions to myself or country managers in Japan. A lot of times there's a grand three or four or five year strategy that becomes the driving force behind that, especially coming out of a North American-based company, right? We've said U.S.-based a lot, but I think North American is probably better here. And as soon as something doesn't go exactly to that plan, you're going to have to redo the entire plan anyway, or at least a large majority of it. So I spent a lot of time working with other groups at headquarters, developing the, the plan to, to enter the market in Japan. I worked a lot with DICE, to help refine that plan and develop it. And basically from the moment we got here, things went differently. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> maintaining... What's this saying? Like no plan survives the first contact with the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it's something like that. Uh, the, the, I, I think you can spend years and years planning and not know what's gonna happen. I think a much better approach to market entry, and, and I'm speaking specifically about Japan, but I think this applies globally, is to take a small force of some of the really good employees that you have, put them there, let them hire a few really good employees, and then start to make your strategy and your decision, right? I think a year in, it's 
it's completely respectable for for a company like GitHub or any other company in our position to have a 36-month plan for what we think this is going to look like. But early but th- on, stay flexible, stay agile. Right. That, that plan will change. And, and we have that today, but it will change. So understanding that, I think, and having support. I think one of the harder things, going back to an earlier question, is having the support from headquarters to understand that that plan is very flexible. It's, it's almost like going back and being a startup again. It's exactly like going back and being a startup again. I think there's a lot of things that are very similar to doing what we're doing here. As when I came into GitHub, when I joined GitHub, it was just over 100 people. And the sales team, the team I joined at the time, I was the fifth person on the sales team. So it was a lot of the same things. Lots of planning, but then lots of iterations to that plan, changing over time, adapting to the market, adapting to who was buying our product and what they were doing. And we're in the exact same position here, except now the scope is a little broader because it involves sales, support, marketing, HR, all the functions that you need for a company, maybe outside of engineering. And it's an incredibly difficult prospect to look at from a high enough level to establish the strategies and the tactics that you need to execute on a plan that's that long. All right. That makes sense. Well, listen, before we wrap up, is there anything that you want to talk about? Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? So there's, there's, there's one thing that you, you didn't ask that I, I think is a valid question that lots of other people have asked, which is, do you need an expat in a market to be successful? Ooh, that's a good question. You're right. I should have asked that. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the answer? The answer is yes and no. Do you need one? Should it be a hard and fast rule? Absolutely not. But I think it's been helpful to be here and to have some of those relationships but I also think it's been great that we've, we've built a, a Japanese team, right? It's not, it's not a team of expats here. It's a Japanese team with a handful of expats sprinkled through the region. I've seen companies go both routes where it's been all people from overseas establishing an office here, or it's been no people from overseas, and, and both can be successful. But I think there's something, especially from a cultural perspective, about having somebody who's, who's lived that company's culture for a period of time coming into an organization to help build that up, especially in a place where corporate culture can be so different <laughs> like it is in Japan. Well, on the, flip from, side so too, on the flip side, too, you were mentioning that the clout you had at headquarters allowed you to get a lot of things done for the Japan office that maybe a local hire without those connections, without that trust, would not have been able to, to achieve. Sure. I think, I think they would have eventually achieved it, but it would have been maybe a little slower. And I, I also I can only comment on, on the situation that I've been in. It could be very different for other companies. But I, I think that having an expat is more important for driving the cultural aspects of a company that you want to maintain globally than it is for success in a region. Hmm. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Well, listen... Thank you so much for sitting down with me. This has been a great conversation. Absolutely, Tim. Always good to talk to you. And we're back. You know, part of me is still amazed that GitHub has done as well as they have without localizing their product into Japanese. They are truly the exception that proves the rule. So let's dive into that a moment. Actually, before we do... Let me go on a mini rant about that expression, the exception that proves the rule. That does not mean an exception demonstrates a rule to be true, which is how people try to use it, 
I mean, that's abject nonsense. Prove, in this case, means to test or challenge, as in a proving ground. It's the exception that challenges the rule. So let's take a hard look at this. GitHub has been very successful without product localization in Japan because of a wonderful confluence of Japan's bottom-up decision-making process and the fact that their product is used by software developers who usually have no trouble understanding technical English. This has allowed them to make steady sales, but I think it is telling that even in this environment, GitHub found that their documentation and their support had to be in Japanese. So GitHub, as a very successful and popular unlocalized enterprise product in Japan, is truly the exception that proves the rule. If you've got a question about GitHub or their market entry into Japan, Derek and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show062 and let's talk about it. When you drop by, you'll find all the links and sites that Derek and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And I also want to tell you about Disrupting Japan Inroads. It's a subscription service that details real-world case studies of Japan market entry. Now, it's based on the conversations we have in this podcast, but the case studies are condensed, structured, and contain additional information. Inroads is an amazing value, and it's how I plan to keep the Disrupting Japan podcast free forever for everyone. So please check out disruptingjapan.com inroads for information on how to subscribe and more information on what it's all about. And most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japan know about the show. I'm Tim Romero. And thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.